This is the Disability Law Show on the Bell Talk Radio Network. Yes, it is. And welcome. Good to have you along. It is another Saturday afternoon. James Fireman here, John Scholes as well. We invite you to call any time to the show. Love having you on the air. Don't you know, it uh, makes it that much better when you partake. It is 416-872-1010. That is how you call in. Text as well. We can answer those. 71010 if you prefer. And anytime you want to reach out to James, he's got a great team with him as well. In the background, that is help at disabilityrights.ca and one 821 5,900 any other time. James, we've got a lot of uh, emails and questions coming through already, but we always start off with a, uh, you know, a bit of a week that was a case of the day. What do you got going for me, pal? How are you? I can't complain. Um, you know, with the, the, the unfortunate passing of the queen and Charles ascending to the throne, I think you and I have to accept <laughs> that we're probably going to be hearing from Charles less frequently. Hi. You know, frequent caller to the show, but he's got other things he's got to do now, more responsibilities. Charles in charge. Yeah. Indeed he is. Okay. Um, on to uh, the serious matters at hand week that was. So this isn't actually one of mine. This is uh, one of my colleagues at the firm <laughs> had an intake call with a potential client who had a lawyer that was helping, and I put that in quotes, right. with, with their dispute with the insurer. And so I don't really know many of the facts. I don't know what the disability was. I don't even know who the insurer was. What I do know, though, is that this lawyer had helped this person appeal the denial three times mm. and was charging this person on an hourly rate and to date, after three unsuccessful appeals, this person had paid in excess of $13,000 out of pocket to the lawyer for the assistance in appealing the denial from the insurer. So there are two things about that that are very, very wrong. First and foremost, if you've listened to the show at all, you know what my stance is on appeals. Don't yep. do them. There are a couple very, very narrow exceptions. One of those exceptions is after having applied, if there is very new, very significant medical information that the insurer is not aware of, okay, that is a circumstance where you can appeal. That's very unusual, but it can happen. The other is if your circumstances are such that you haven't being off benefits for a significant period of time, mm-hmm. and you don't know what you're likely to do in terms of pursuing the claim. In other words, if you think you might actually return to work in the very near future, then it usually makes sense to delay deciding whether or not you want to bring a legal claim or whether you want to just let it go or something else until you figured out whether or not you're actually going to be able to return to work. And so if you have two or three months where you're waiting to figure it out, In that circumstance, I usually say, okay, you might as well appeal once because you're waiting anyway. Right. But understand it is probably a waste of time. But since you're waiting anyway, why not? Those are really the only two exceptions that I have. Otherwise, it's a waste of time. All you are doing is you are giving the insurer an opportunity to hang on to their money longer. If they have denied your claim and your doctors are telling you that you are disabled from work, then that is your money and you should be starting a legal claim as soon as possible so we can get to resolution. So that's number one, that there is a, an appeal at all 
is something that suggests to me that this lawyer that is helping this person out is not someone with a lot of experience in disability law. Again, it just, you know, I, I don't think I've ever been retained for an appeal. It's just not something that I would do. It doesn't make any sense. Even in the situations where someone is within one of those two unusual exceptions, it's not something they would retain me for. It's not something as a lawyer I would ever do. I wouldn't want to be taking any of that person's money if the appeal was successful. If the appeal was successful, they should be entitled to keep it all. Sure. But it's so rare that it would be successful that it doesn't make a lot of sense. The other thing that is really troubling, and this is you know, probably worse, is that the lawyer is charging on an hourly rate. There is no lawyer that I have heard of that has any experience with disability law that charges clients by the hour. It just doesn't make sense. People who have been denied or have been cut off benefits by their insurer, by definition, are not working and are not receiving disability benefits that they had counted on being there for exactly that situation. So invariably, those are people who are in very difficult financial circumstances. Those are people who simply cannot afford, in almost all cases, to be paying out of pocket for a lawyer on an hourly to handle their claim, let alone handling appeal or three appeals that are going to go nowhere. So that makes no sense. The people who, the lawyers who practice in this area are almost all, in fact, as far as I know, we all use what we call a contingency fee retainer. What that means is that you are charged only at the end of the case and only if we are successful. And the way that we're compensated is as a percentage of what we recover from the insurer. That way, there is no risk to the people who hire us, because if you lose, you're not going to have to pay anything. And during the course of the litigation, you're not going to be out of pocket one dime. We don't charge our clients anything. In fact, I tell my clients when they sign up that if anyone from my firm ever calls and asks for money, they should yeah. fire us right away because yeah. it's just not going to happen. You're not going to be out of pocket. We don't ask our clients to pay even for the expenses that we incur as the case goes along. We cover that. And the reason we do it is simple. If someone calls us and we believe that they have a valid claim, then we're willing to take that chance. We're willing to invest not only our time, but also our money into the claim because we think it's going to be successful. And that is the way that every lawyer I know practices in this area sets up their retainer agreement. And so if you are uh, looking at a lawyer to help you with your disability claim and they suggest a retainer that is in any way significantly different, where they're looking for an hourly rate, where they're looking for money out of pocket, up front, what have you, then that is a huge red flag. That suggests to me someone who is not experienced in this area, because mm -hmm. if you are, you simply would not be operating that way. And so this is someone who obviously we are going to do what we can to help, but unfortunately, they're already out of pocket, $13,000, and have gotten nowhere gone absolutely nowhere in the process you know until you just mentioned that i was going to say you know with you know three appeals being uh 
being done and that big chunk of change being charged, this smacks of somebody who may be some other type of lawyer. And that's the problem that people, they don't always realize, James, is, oh, I already have a lawyer, handles all my house stuff or handles all my family law. I could just use them for this because they are, quote unquote, a lawyer. They should be able to help me in this arena as well. And obviously that is not the case. Very specific stuff to be to, to do, right? Yeah. I mean, listen, there was a time where lawyers would handle any manner of cases. And there are still some small towns that have lawyers that operate that way. But the reality is that technology being what it is today Mm -hmm. and having advanced as quickly as it has over the last couple of years, thanks in large part to, to the pandemic, we're no longer in a situation where you, you know, should be practicing in many different areas, especially if you don't have experience because there are, readily available specialized lawyers that practice in that area all the time, which is the reason why we are no longer just an Ontario-based firm or, or just a BC-based firm, for that matter. Yeah. We're across the country. You know, I, I myself, I'm called in Ontario. I'm called in British Columbia. I'm called in Alberta, and I practice disability law in all three provinces. And there's going to be more that we're adding to that as well. Yeah. Uh, it, it's something that I can specialize in this area of law in virtually any jurisdiction in Canada, the exception, of course, in Quebec. Um, that, that's a whole other can of worms. But other than that, you know, this is what I do. I specialize in it. And whatever jurisdiction you're in, it's something that I'm going to be able to help you with because we can do almost all of this virtually these days. And that yeah. is, in fact, the way that it goes. That's the way that we're we're practicing these days. It is unusual where I have a claim and someone has to do anything in person. The vast majority of the claims go from signing the retainer to a mediation within 10 months. And usually there's little else that the client is required to do. But whatever they have to do, whether it is the initial call, whether it is the mediation, even if they have to do an examination for discovery, the other lawyer might ask questions. And that's pretty rare these days. Those are all done virtually. It's done over Zoom. It's very easy. They're able to do it in the comfort of their own home. They're able to do it in an environment that they know and understand that is not going to be intimidating for them. And it's something that, you know, especially for people who have physical disabilities, where mobility is an issue, it makes it very, very easy. So there isn't really uh, a, a reason for someone, even in a small town, to be reliant on the lawyer around the corner. And and listen, I've got nothing against small town lawyers. There's some amazing small town lawyers. Some of the best lawyers in Canada are small town lawyers. There's no doubt about that. But if they don't have the experience and expertise in a particular area of law, for example, in disability law, then they shouldn't be handling the claim. And so again, I say this one more time. If there is a lawyer suggesting they can help you with a disability claim, and they're suggesting you should appeal, or they're suggesting that they should you should sign a retainer on an hourly rate. They're the wrong person. They're not someone who has experience. That's just the way. Good opening salvo, buddy. We'll take a uh, short break. Got some emails on the way. They're already starting to add up. If you want to reach out and uh, contribute, 416-872-1010. That's the phone call uh, to get James on the line talking to you or text 71010 as well. And we'll continue with the Disability Law Show. Hang on. You're listening to the Disability Law Show on the Bell Talk Radio Network. 
And thank you so much for hanging through the break. It is 119 Saturday afternoon. John Scholes here along with James Fireman, partner, Samfiru Tamarkin, LLP, the most positively reviewed law firm in the entire country. So feel free and safe to reach out to James and just have a discussion, right? 1-855-821-5900 to get that ball rolling. You can email as well, help at disabilityrights.ca. And if uh, any other information you need, you want to ask some questions, there's a website. Of course there is, built just for you. It's free. It's anonymous called mydisabilityquestions.com. You can refer to that anytime. Maybe your question will show up on a future show and we'll uh, get you some answers, which we're going to do right now. James William, first one up to the plate today, says, uh, hey guys, I was receiving LTD benefits for a while. Started seeing a psychotherapist that the insurer recommended. I was encouraged to engage in outdoor activities like hiking and golf, but then the insurance company eventually used that against me to cut off my claim after conducting surveillance. I'm still not well enough to work. What can I do now? Okay. Well, if they cut you off on the basis of surveillance Mm -hmm. that showed you doing the activities that were recommended by the psychotherapist that the insurer recommended, (laughs) then the answer is we bring a legal claim and we recover the benefits that you're entitled to, presuming that you continue to be disabled from work. Uh, Let's talk a little bit about surveillance and, and how it's used. Uh, There is a lot of fear around this. There is an idea that if you start a legal claim or even if you start an insurance claim, in other words, if you just apply for your disability insurance, that automatically uh, you're going to have the insurer following you around, hiring investigators, photographing you, videotaping you. That's just not true. It happens, but it's an exception. It's something that if you start this process, no matter how far you go, you should not be expecting that you're going to have surveillance and that there's going to be an investigator that is trailing you. But here's the thing. Even if it does happen, it really should not matter. And I say even in William's case, it really didn't matter. Because if this is the basis for the denial, let me assure you, that the insurance company was going to cut him off anyway. They were looking for any justification, and they were obviously quite prepared to manufacture one. And if it hadn't been this, I promise you, it would certainly have been something else. So it isn't a case here that, you know, because the possibility of surveillance exists, that William's benefits were cut off. No, really has nothing to do with it. As long as you are following what is the recommendations of your treating doctors, then there is absolutely nothing that you need to worry about in terms of surveillance, provided you're being honest. So if your doctors are saying that you should engage in outdoors acti- outdoor activities such as hiking and golf, as the, phys- the psychotherapist that William was sent to see apparently recommended, that is what's being recommended, then there's absolutely nothing wrong with him doing it, provided that when he is speaking with doctors or with the insurance company, he acknowledges that this is what he's doing and he's doing it on doctor's orders. Mm -hmm. As long as that's the case, then there is nothing that he's doing that contradicts what he's told anybody. And so there would be no basis for the insurance company to use that as a justification for terminating benefits. Unless what he was doing was so clearly, uh, was so clearly showing that he's capable of returning to work. But I can't imagine that's the case for William, because William was recommended that he goes hiking and golfing by his psychotherapist. So one would presume that William's disability is related to his mental health. 
And the fact that someone is able to go hiking or golfing does not mean that they are capable of going to work. They're just different activities, unless I suppose your employment is as a hiker or a golfer, but I <laughs> don't expect that's the case for William no. here. That aside, all that shows is that you are participating in some outdoor activities, but whatever your job is, it's going to require you to keep a schedule. It's going to require you to meet the demands, to be able to handle stress and anxiety. It's going to be able to require you, it's going to require you to do any of the specific tasks that are required in whatever your job is. That's not the same thing as going hiking or golfing. It just isn't. And if an insurance company uses that as the basis to terminate your benefits, they're wrong. It's as simple as that. So we start a we start a legal claim, and we get the benefits that you're entitled to. You know, it's interesting this topic, and we've talked about this on previous shows. I find surveillance fascinating, James, especially when you kind of you kind of leveled out and, and throw it out there as far as what it means. Uh, number one, I assume it's not just ten minutes of surveillance that an insurance company is going to going to be asking for. They're going to probably have hours, if not days. Who knows? I don't know the exact amount, and I'm sure it doesn't come free. So they're going to they're going to want to get something for their money, is what I'm trying to say. So will they really try to poke at whatever they can to justify the expense of surveillance? Because that 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 word alone makes people nervous who surveillance i'm being watched but if you're on the up and up you got nothing to worry about and the part two of that question i got for you is can it um what's the word i'm looking for can it work against them if they've got 10 hours of surveillance showing doing nothing well that that plays to to your case does it not john it's like you you've heard this show before <laughs> it's amazing it, no okay so it's in all serious in all seriousness in all seriousness though I can now speak. Um, those are excellent questions, and the point is very well made. When an insurance company is spending money, and that is obviously what they are doing when they are conducting surveillance, they're doing it for a reason. They're doing it because they are trying to generate a justification to terminate your benefits. Insurance companies do not like to spend money that they don't absolutely have to. They certainly don't like paying benefits, and they don't want to pay benefits and other expenses unless they think it will save the money in the long run. So if they are paying an investigator to conduct surveillance, they are going to look at it as carefully as they can, and they are going to mine that, that surveillance for any justification they can find that they can use to try and terminate benefits. They don't mind cherry-picking. They don't mind taking things completely out of context. They don't mind ignoring what they see in some cases, and they don't mind not looking at the entire surveillance. And that sort of leads in to that second part of the question, because typically speaking, when an insurance company does conduct surveillance, what they will usually do is they will give approval to the investigator to do surveillance over several days. Usually there's a few that are back to back. Sometimes they're in consecutive weeks, whatever. The idea is they're trying to see if you're doing things that you have said you can't do, or uh, if they're really lucky, if they can catch someone actually going to work. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, th- that's pretty rare. And if they do catch someone going to work, they're quite justified, obviously, in terminating uh, the benefits. But save and except for that situation, it's pretty rare in a disability context that surveillance is ever even remotely relevant because it's almost never going to show you that the person is doing things that suggest they are capable of returning to work. The only, the only place where surveillance 
can be helpful to an insurance company, short of showing the person actually work, is if it shows the person engaging in activities that they have very recently said they are completely incapable of doing. So if you have a call with your claims handler, for example, and the claims handler says, well, tell me about your typical day. What do you do? And you say, oh, you know, I never get out of bed. There isn't a day in the last month where I've been able to do anything more than maybe make some toast. Mm. And I need help in the shower and I need help getting dressed. And they conduct surveillance of you. And during this month where you say you haven't been out of bed, they see you going hiking and going golfing. Well, then they've just done something. Then they have found a way to attack your credibility, which means they have a reasonable basis for not believing anything that you say. Mm. And now you really are giving them a basis for, for terminating your benefits, even if you're still not capable of returning to work, because now they have reason to question everything that you're telling them. And they can take that a step further. They can say, well, if they're not being honest with me, they may well not be honest with their doctors as well. And so it may be that even though their doctors are saying they can't return to work, it's possible the foundation of that opinion by the doctors is based on misinformation from that person. That person is lying to the doctors as well. So that's the only reason why surveillance can matter at all. So the point of all of this is you need to be straightforward when you're in upfront with your insurance company, when they're asking what you can do. Don't try and hide what you're capable of doing, particularly where your doctor has approved of you do. Couple texts on the way. We'll get to those as we get into a short break. And you got time for a phone call too. If you want to give us a call here on air, 416-872-1010 or an email. We'll get to Carmen's next. Thank you, Carmen, by the way, ahead of time. Help at disabilityrights.ca. And we will continue with the Disability Law Show and the Bell Talk Radio Network. Welcome back to the Disability Law Show on the Bell Talk Radio Network. Yep, what he said. Welcome back. It is 1.34 Saturday. Good to have you along, John Scholes. Of course, James Fireman is doing all the heavy lifting as he does every week here on the show. You want to reach out to James when we're not doing the show. Here's the uh, simplest way to do that. Phone call, toll free, obviously, one 855 You can write that down or re- uh, reach out through email help at disabilityrights.ca. But we always encourage the uh, phone calls during the show, right? 416-872-1010 and text 71010 as well. One to get to our first call for the show today, James. Our uh, good pal Frank has been hanging on the line for a uh, a couple minutes there. Frank, thank you so much for taking the time to call into the show. How are you, pal? Not too bad. Not too bad. Uh, What do you got in mind? I got a question regarding, I know you're talking about surveillance and insurance companies proving that you're able to do your, you know, your regular tasks or hobbies, whatever you had prior to a disability car accident. I mean, to use the analogy, like someone gets hit and now they're crippled in a wheelchair. I mean, they used to cross the street with two feet, but now they're crossing it in a wheelchair. The task is still being done. But if you can't do your work at an eight-hour shift and you can only do it at a four-hour now, and there's mental strain and emotional strain on the way you used to do your tasks, how can the insurance companies prove that? I mean, there's no one there that knows your health better than yourself and your doctor who's examining you. You're, you're exactly right, Frank. And this is what we talk about on the show every week. The, the opinion that judges rely on in the rare instances that long-term disability cases actually wind up in front of judges, invariably what they look at first is what do the treating doctors say? 
And when the treating doctors are all saying that the person can't work, that's who the judge is going to believe. Ninety-nine times out of hundred. That's fine. Anything else, Frank? No, that was it. So I guess even if you can still continue to do your tasks or hobbies, but they're limited into the amount and the joy you had prior, I mean, you're still hurt and they owe you money. Well, yeah, and the disability regardless so it's, of your your you know your pursuit proceeding your. The recovery and stuff. I mean, the suffering was there. So, Frank, you know, that is a a good point. So when we're talking about disability claims, we're talking about insurance policies, contracts that are defined. And you're entitled to receive your disability benefits if you have a disability that prevents you from doing your job. It's not an issue about whether or not you can do your grocery shopping or your housekeeping or cross the street for that matter. The issue is, do you have a disability that prevents you from being able to do your own occupation? And if that is the case, regardless of what, what, other, what other activities you're capable of doing, you're entitled to your disability benefits. Okay. Full stop. Frank, thank you so much thank for you. calling. Thank Greatly appreciate it. Thanks. Very appreciate it, pal. You want to reach out and have a further conversation if necessary. That is a, that's an option for you. one 821 5900 and help at disabilityrights.ca. I did mention the text number. You can use that any time during the show. 71010. Simple, right? 71010. Uh, quick one here, James. My employer changed LTD insurers while I'm on LTD. Would the uh, recurring clause apply in this case? Recurrence clause, I guess, reply, apply in this case. That's a great question. Uh, so the person that texted that in, greatly appreciated. So first, let's give a little bit of context for our mm-hmm. listeners out there. Uh, the recurrence clause is a provision where if you are on disability benefits and you get to a point where you think you can try returning to work and you give it a shot and you're not able to do it, You try going back to work and you're just not able to do it. If you return to a disabled condition, in other words, if your attempt to return to work is less than a certain period of time, which is usually six months, if it's less than, let's say, that six months, then you're entitled to start getting your benefits as soon as you go back off work again without having to go through an elimination period or whatever they call it. Sometimes uh, they call it a waiting period. Usually when you apply for benefits, when you make a new claim, it's usually three months or four months or six months before those long-term disability benefits actually kick in. But if you've already been on and you try to go back to work and you're not successful, you don't last more than whatever that recurrence period is, then you're entitled to go back on benefits without going through that waiting period. Mm -hmm. So what this person is asking is if the employer has changed insurers while he's on LTD, would the recurrence clause still apply? Well, the the insurance that applies to you is going to be the same policy that was insuring you when you first went off. So this is an important thing to understand about disability insurance. If you become disabled, if you are not able to work because of a disability, At the day where you leave work, the day where you take your medical leave, whatever policy is in effect at that point in time is the policy that will be applied to your disability claim from the date you go on leave until that disability has resolved and you're able to return to work, even if it goes to 65 and even if your employer changes insurance companies in the interim. 
So in this particular case, this, this person who's texted us is obviously someone who is on disability insurance and their employer in the meantime has changed the insurance provider. So they might have used insure X. Now they're using insure Y. Right. And they made that change while he is on disability, while he's getting benefits. That has no impact on his claim. That has no impact on his rights. It has no impact on the amount of monthly uh, benefits he's going to receive. It has no impact on the recurrence clause or anything else. His insurance claim is with insurance company X, the same insurance company that was insuring him the day he went on medical leave will be the insurance company that will be insuring him throughout his entire disability, full stop. Love the clarification. Carmen, thank you so much for hanging on for your email to get read. Let's get into this, James, really start on it. Carmen says, my husband was just diagnosed with terminal throat cancer. He'd been battling several health issues for the past three years and was given various diagnoses for his many symptoms like fatigue, dizziness, chest pain, weight loss, and depression. He also turned to alcohol for a period of time to self-medicate. The insurance company knew all of this except for the recent cancer diagnosis and denied my husband more LTD benefits anyway at the change of definition last year. We tried a bunch of appeals, but I'm tired of fighting them. And I want to focus on my husband right now for the however long he has. I'm wondering what happens with his claim if he passes away. There is a lot to unpack here. So I'm going to do my best. Um, First and foremost, I'm going to answer the question that Carmen actually asked, which is what happens with his claim if he passes away. So if he were to pass away, the estate would then be entitled to bring a claim uh, in Carmen's husband's stead. So if Carmen's husband were to pass away and had a valid claim for disability benefits, Carmen, assuming that she was the executor of the estate, would be able to uh, pursue that claim against the insurance company for whatever benefits her husband would have been entitled to from the date the benefits stopped until the date he died. That would be the period that benefits would be payable for. He wouldn't be entitled to benefits beyond the date he died, of course, because that is the date where the policy would end. That is written into virtually every policy I've ever seen. In fact, I'm sure it is in every policy I've ever seen. Right. So that's what would happen there. The one thing I would say, though, is this is actually fitting within the one of those two exceptions I mentioned at the top of the show where I said, you know, you should never appeal, it's a waste of time. And sure enough, Carmen's husband tried appealing a few times, as Carmen sets out in her email, and was unsuccessful. But what Carmen also says is that the insurance company wasn't aware of the cancer diagnosis. Now, technically speaking, that shouldn't actually change anything, because the analysis is meant to be on the symptoms, not the diagnosis. But the reality is that the diagnosis does have a practical impact. It has the impact of making the insurer take a second hard look at this case and say, wait a minute, if all of these symptoms were caused by cancer, then pretty clearly, if this is in front of a judge, we're going to lose. We're not going to be able to make out the case that her husband was making all of this up because now there is a reason in black and white that can't be disputed. And in that situation, it makes sense to appeal. I'm not telling you that if Carmen's husband were to appeal that he would succeed, but there's at least a better chance than there normally would be. And it's worthwhile in this rare circumstance to actually do it. This is one of those very rare exceptions to my never appeal rule. Mm -hmm. 
Guys, let's take a short break. We'll get to more emails and questions as well. And you still have time for uh, for a phone call like we've had uh, just moments ago. You can do that, 416-872-1010. That's how you do that. If you prefer a text, we can get to more of those, 71010. And reaching out to James any other time, help at disabilityrights.ca. And 1-855-821-5900. Back with more Disability Law Show on the Bell Talk Radio Network. This is the Bell Talk Radio Network, and you're listening to The Disability Law Show. All right, thank you so much for sticking around. It is 1.50, few minutes to go here on this Saturday. James Furman, always there and ready to take your calls on and off air, by the way. 1-855-821-5900. When we're not doing this particular hour of radio and help at disabilityrights.ca, but here and now, the phone number, use it, 416-872-1010 and Texas 71010 as well. I want to get to uh, William here, James. He's been standing by for uh, for but a moment. William, thank you so much for taking the time to, uh, to call in. How are you? Not too bad. Not too bad. It's a lovely Saturday in September. So my question is, is, re- is really sort of just gen- general information because I never hear it talked about on these shows. Uh, I injured my shoulder at work last year, uh, long, you know, and then began the long process of diagnostic imaging and blah, blah, blah. Long story short, I had surgery over a month ago. And I'm still in the recovery phase and then, you know, presumably rehab and so on and so forth. But what is the role of a disability lawyer in dealing with WSIB claims, if any at all? Currently, things are are good, but you never know. So, Mm -hmm. you know, be prepared. So a, a very good question, William, and it's one that a lot of people are curious about. The reason you don't hear us talking about it is because we frankly don't do WSIB work. It's just not an area that we have expertise in. Having said that, because you were injured at work doesn't mean that you actually don't still have a long-term disability claim. It isn't the same kind of claim that most of the people that call in have, but it can be important. And let me explain why. So if you have long-term disability insurance and you are injured at work, of course, you're going to apply for WSIB. The reality is that WSIB, if you're approved, is going to pay at a higher rate than virtually any long-term disability policy I've seen. Typically speaking, WSIB winds up paying something like 90%. And if you're getting paid WSIB, even if you're approved for long-term disability benefits, that is going to entirely offset any benefits that you would be getting from your insurer. And so you would ha- you would nominally be approved for long-term disability benefits, but would be receiving $0 on a monthly basis. But that's okay. That's actually a good thing. Because if WSIB cuts you off at some point in the future, but you still aren't able to work, then you still have the entitlement to disability benefits. And that can happen. Let's say, for example, that you are injured at work and you're no longer able to do it for some period of time. That injury during, let's say, the year that you're off goes on to heal. But during that time, you develop, you develop other things that are disabling you from work. Oftentimes, when you have a physical disability, it can lead to mental health issues. And if your mental health deteriorates to the point where you can't go back to work, 
then that is a valid basis to continue your long-term disability claim, which would now be engaged once WSIB cuts you off. So it is, in effect, in effect a safety net against WSIB cutting you off, or maybe WSIB cuts you off improperly, whatever the case may be. It is much better to have that as a fallback. The other thing is, oftentimes with long-term disability benefits, they are packaged with other benefits as well. Usually, the extended health benefits are sort of a separate deal, but long-term disability benefits very frequently will come with a life insurance uh, policy. Usually, it's a modest policy, something like $50,000, but it's a benefit nonetheless. And when you are approved for LTD, even if they're paying you $0, there is almost always going to be a waiver of premium for the life insurance which means that you don't have to pay those benefits, usually the, or the premiums. Usually the premiums would be paid by your employer while you're working, but if you're not working and you're not on LPD, then you would have to pay them yourself if you wanted to continue that benefit. But if you're approved for LTD, even if the monthly payment is zero because you're getting WSIB, you still would be getting the waiver of premium and you would still have that life insurance policy and the safety net of the LTD benefits if WSIB cuts you off in the future. Thank you so much for calling in, William. William, appreciate the call again. If you want to carry on a little further, you can uh, you can do so anytime. James is there. The phone number is there as well, and that would be uh, 1-855-821-5900. want to get on to uh, another question here, James. And uh, let me just roll back into my, uh, my questions. Rental property, stocks, stuff like that, they're receiving some sort of income while getting LTD that they have to report that income to the insurance company. Does it matter? Do you have to? No, but my <laughs> my, my recommendation is that you do. Um, it's very likely not going to have any impact on what your entitlement is. That is passive income. So that is not income that you are getting from employment. That is what you would call investment income. Now, that can change if you have, you know, if you have a business, if you are uh, engaged in, you know, if you're a landlord, for example, if you own many properties and you are, you, you're collecting rental income as a business on it in and of itself, then that is something that the insurance company might classify as income that would be counted against the benefits that they're required to pay. But on the other hand, you know, if you have a room that you are renting out to um, some college kid for a few hundred dollars a month, that's not something that the insurance company really has any entitlement to. But that said, you don't want to hide it from them. You don't want to make it look like you're, you're trying to get away with something because you're really not. Likewise with stocks, you're allowed to have investments and they're allowed to earn income and that doesn't impact your long-term disability benefits. The insurer says otherwise and give us a call right away. But you have the, you have the ability to earn passive income and it's not always the case that it's going to net you money anyway. So it isn't something that you should be too concerned about and it's not something I would recommend hiding from your insurer. Last two minutes, I'll get another uh, final quick email in here from Nestor. It says, James, my LTD was accepted as a recurrence and I'm covered until April 2023, two-year mark that'll be. They're asking me to apply for CPP disability. Should I? Does it affect getting CPP when I retire? Says he's 52. Uh, absolutely, you should be applying for CPP disability. If you don't know what that is, if you have been paying into CPP, which most everybody does, 
and you become injured from work, then you're entitled to apply for CPP disability. The test is more difficult. It's a severe and prolonged disability. But if you're approved, you would get up to, I think, $1,450 a month. If you're also getting LTD, it's not going to add any money to your pocket because it's an offset against what the insurance company has to pay. But it is still very much to your benefit. First of all, it's a safety net if LTD cuts you off. But also, and this is getting to the second part of Nestor's question, what, what's the impact of getting the CPP proper, the regular candidate pension plan when you retire? Well, mm-hmm. if you are getting CPP disability, then you're not being dinged for years not contributing to CPP. You're, get, you're given a pass for those years. And so actually, the impact on getting CPP when you retire is positive. You'll get a larger CPP amount, or at least that's my understanding, if you have been approved for CPP disability than you would if you just were not paying anything into CPP during that time period. And with that, we're done. Well answered, well taken care of. If you want to reach out now that we're done for this Saturday, you can do so with James and his team, one 821 5900 help at disabilityrights.ca is always the email address we go to. And for any other questions, you can ask those on your phone or on your desktop or whatever tablet, mydisabilityquestions.com. That is free and anonymous and it's searchable. So maybe your question is already there and answered. Save you a bit of time. If not, you can use that, mydisabilityquestions.com. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for all the phone calls, texts, etc. We'll see you next Saturday here on the Disability Law Show on the Bell Talk Radio Network.